Lucky Land Casino asking people what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kids PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere playing at luckylandslots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void prohibited by law. 18+. Plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. The views expressed on this program do not necessarily reflect the views of this station. You should consult a financial advisor or conduct your own due diligence and base all financial decisions on your specific situation. The show is furnished by Edelman Financial Services, a registered investment advisor. Rick Edelman is also a registered representative and principal of Sanders Morris Harris, an affiliated broker-dealer member FINRA SIPC. This is the Rick Edelman Show. Now, here's Rick Edelman. And a very happy weekend to you. Rick Edelman here. Thanks very much for joining us on the program. We have a very big announcement. Well, okay, only for us financial geeks. Yeah, you know what it is? You'll never guess. I know you've been – actually, I'll bet you've been waiting on pins and needles for this. You know what it is? September is Life Insurance Awareness Month. Yay! Okay, before you, before you, quit, before you change the channel, before you – Stop listening before you give an askew glance at the person sitting in the car next to you. Give me a moment because it's, you know, really quite seriously, we love to talk about creating wealth. I mean, that's what I do. I'm a wealth manager. If you really want to, you know, come right down to it, we're wealth advisors. We are investment advisors. We're financial planners. Our job at our firm, and, and not just Edelman Financial Services, but every financial advisor around the country, our job is to help our clients create and grow wealth. You can get into some nitty gritties such as managing wealth, distributing wealth, you know, minimizing taxes, and blah, blah, blah. But at the end of the day, the reason people come to us is because they want to get wealthier than they are now. But I got to tell you, before we can truly focus on efforts to grow wealth, we really need to make sure that the basics are covered. That matters at least equally as much, if not even more so. I mean, before you can get into that rocket ship to get to the moon, you got to make sure the thing will take off safely. You got to make sure we're going to be able to operate effectively. You know what Irma Bombeck used to say life is what happens when you're making other plans. And we need to make sure that we're okay and that we're protected. And so I really want to spend some time today on the program helping you understand the context of this. And nobody better to help us do this than my friend Byron Udell. Byron, welcome to the program. Good to be here, Rick. Byron is the founder and CEO of AccuQuote, uh, one of the largest uh, brokerage firms online in the world of life insurance. Uh, and Byron and I have known each other for a number of years. And uh, and Byron is, is very eloquent in explaining the whole context, not just of life insurance. We're also going to talk about long-term care insurance. We're going to talk about disability insurance. Byron, I want to throw a couple of statistics out at you. you you're going to be well familiar with this, but I know that our listeners are not. 
Limera is an organization in the life insurance industry. It's the Marketing and Research Association for the Life Insurance Industry. And Limera just came out with a study focused on what they called middle market consumers. These are people defined as being in the ages of 25 to 64, which is pretty much every adult, with incomes of $35,000 to $100,000, middle market consumers. And I'm willing to bet that most of my listeners would put themselves in that category. They are broadly somewhere between 25 and 64 years of age, and their incomes are somewhere between 35 grand and 100 grand. And according to the study, of those middle market consumers, 46% of them, half, have no life insurance at all. What do you, what's your reaction to that? That statistic has been the same since I've been watching it and tracking it. It's roughly half the country has none. Some people have some token amount at work, but we clearly have a big job to do. And it, Absolutely. I, and it's frustrating. It, it's actually rather scary. 51% of those surveyed say that they would need to make a drastic financial change if a family wage earner died. 51% would have their lifestyle completely disrupted if they had a wage earner die in their household. And yet, they don't seem to be doing anything about it. Now, why? What, why? what is the fundamental reason, Byron, that you believe people do not own life insurance? Well, there are a number of reasons. First of all, it's tough to come to grips with your own mortality. In order to buy life insurance, you have to, at least for a moment, think about the fact that you are mortal and you are going to die for those of that, that don't know, the odds of death are one out of one. <laughs> so we're all going to die. Some of us may become wealthy, some of us may not, but we're all going to die. And so since we're all going to die, one would think that people would be lined up to buy these products from here to Alaska five wide, especially since uh, – and, and again, this is the second reason. I don't think people realize how affordable it is. Uh, you know, a 40-year-old male who's in good health and doesn't smoke can buy a half million dollars of coverage for just over $30 a month. I mean, it, it's, there's no reason not to have it. And those prices have never been cheaper, which is partly because of well, longevity. Yep. So it's yep. fascinating. A product never easier to get than now because people are healthier than ever. Never less expensive than now because of advances in longevity. And yet people are denying themselves this issue. And, and I, you said something really interesting there, that this is largely about people not wanting to think about their own mortality. There's a, a terrific quote I just saw in researching this story about September being Life Insurance Awareness Month. It was a terrific quote. It says, you don't buy life insurance because you're going to die, but because those you love are going to live. That's another way of saying, you know, life insurance isn't for the, you know, it, it's it's really for the people you're leaving behind. Absolutely. It, you know, it's, no question. Yeah, I'm not buying life insurance for me because if I'm if I die, well, I'm dead. I don't care. My problems are gone. I, you know, talk about getting rid of my problems. So the problem, I don't buy life insurance for me. I buy life insurance for my wife Jean and for my dogs. Well, okay, well, maybe that, that's not. true, and and so people that don't care about what happens after they die, if they don't care about their family and their kids, they never make their way to a conversation about life insurance because. And there are people that tell me, "Look, after I'm dead, I don't care," and I say, "Well, that's fine. I'm not going to judge you. That that's fine. It's just you know we can still be friends. We can play golf, whatever." But I can't help you professionally because I'm, I'm, my business is helping people who do care what happens after they die, so, the people they love. So maybe if you don't care if you die, should we be talking to your spouse or children to see if they care if you die? Well, but, they always care. Uh, they certainly care after they die. We, we, we have uh, 
uh, almost 200,000 clients, and uh, we have, as a result, we have hundreds of death claims every year. I have yet to have a single beneficiary, a surviving spouse, child, ever come to me and say, Byron, I have no idea. Why did you, why did you sell this to my husband? Uh, this money that you sent us, this half million dollars or this million dollars or whatever it may be, we took it to the bank. The bank says they have no room for it. In fact, I don't know how we're ever going to spend it. It's way too much money. Can you give it to someone who needs, more, needs it more than we do? That's never happened, and ever. I, and I don't think it ever will. Here's another great, great quote I came up with. Uh, in my research this week, whatever excuses you may have for not buying life insurance now will only sound ridiculous to your surviving spouse. <laughs> That's a great one. I had never heard that one. <laughs> so, I mean, it, it really is true. And you say, yeah. oh, okay, I don't need the insurance or my family will be fine or I really don't care that much. Say that to your spouse and see if they nod their head in agreement. Because I, I think it's rather astonishing. And, and let's take it a step further. I believe that when people say, I don't really care, I don't think that's what they're really meaning, Byron. I think what they're really meaning is, I really think my spouse will be fine. We've got plenty of money. We own a home. And I think they'll be fine. And all you're trying to do is sell me more life insurance. What I think sometimes that's true. I think sometimes there are people who legitimately don't care. They are out there, Rick. I mean, there are people that 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 hate their spouses, and there you know there, there's people that you know that they're still living together. They're never going to tell a life insurance agent that they they don't. Care. I mean, some people don't. Some people say they don't care, um, and if you're willing to admit you don't care, I mean, my God, uh, you probably really don't care. <laughs> At least I don't. <laughs> I would. I know, would. Most people. There's a lot of people that don't care that say they care, and those are the toughest ones for me because they act like they care, but they never actually buy. Um, so that's you know that's really interesting. I, I think when we come back, can you hang on with us for another few minutes? Sure. When we come back, we're talking with Byron Udell, who's the founder and CEO of AccuQuote. Check them out at AccuQuote.com online if you want to find the uh, best, cheapest way to buy life insurance. We refer our clients to AccuQuote routinely uh, because we're big fans of Byron and his firm. When we come back, uh, we're going to talk further, Byron, about the notion of when, even when people say, I really don't need life insurance because my family will be fine – we're going to talk about the fallacy of that assumption and why so many people who do own life insurance don't have enough life insurance and why they're in a false sense of confidence. We're going to talk about that further with Byron Udell of AccuQuote. I'm Rick Edelman. This is The Truth About Money. You can call us at 888-PLAN-RICK if you've got questions on the subject of insurance, 888-752-6742 or any other aspect of your personal finances. Or visit us online for all of our education about insurance at my website, ricedelman.com. And when we come back, more of our conversation about the fascinating, fabulous, exciting Life Insurance Awareness Month. Stay tuned for more. More with the publisher of the newsletter, Inside Personal Finance, coming up on The Rick Edelman Show. Welcome back to the program. Rick Edelman here. It is September's Life Insurance Awareness Month. I know you were waiting anxiously for it. Most folks, you know, they're looking forward to Christmas and Fourth of July and Valentine's Day. Not me. I look forward to Life Insurance Awareness Month. And so we're celebrating with uh, my good friend uh, and colleague Byron Udell, the founder and CEO of AccuQuote.com. 
one of the nation's largest sellers of life insurance online. How many policies, Byron, a year do you provide to folks? Uh, roughly 20,000. 20, 20, that just amazes me. 20,000 life insurance contracts uh, online uh, on an annual basis. And that's yeah, it's fe- a big number you know, relative. The average life insurance agent writes about 20 to 50 policies a year. We do roughly 20,000. So it's a big number. When life insurance agents hear it, sometimes they don't believe it. But it is true. Um, it started out just as me and it's grown into a big company, and it's been a lot of fun. Uh, and, and well-deservedly so. And, and in line with that is a Harris poll that recently came out that found that of those who do have life insurance, we talked earlier that half of uh, adult Americans don't have life insurance. Of those who do, half of them have less than $100,000 in death benefit, which to me says that's, that's for practical purposes they really don't have life insurance if all you got is fifty or seventy five grand worth of death benefit. Well, let's say we have people calling us all the time. Let's say they make 80000 and they're looking for 250000 which is roughly three times their income. I sometimes ask them, uh, when you die, how long do you plan to be dead? <laughs> because if they plan to be dead more than three years, um, they got a little problem. You know, I also ask them another question, and we have all sorts of needs analysis tools on our website, and we do it voice-to-voice with our agents. Um, I ask a question. One of my favorites is if I were to write you a check – for the amount of death benefit that you have, or and plus all the death benefit we're about to buy. So you own 100, you're looking for another 250, that'd be a total of 350. If I were to write you a check right now in cash for 350,000, no taxes, would you agree to work the rest of your life for no pay? And then I shut up and listen. And of <laughs> and course re- the answer is re- no. The, the answer is almost always no. If they say the answer is yes, then they probably have enough. But that's the quickest gut check I've been able to come up with for people to really – because when you go through the needs analysis, it needs to be their needs analysis. They need to know it's their numbers, and we have all – again, we have all kinds of calculators, industry standard calculators that we use to come up with the, the economic value of a human life. There's nothing I can do as a life insurance agent to replace a, a lost husband, father, wife, mother. The only thing I can do is replace the economic value of that person, and we're really good at coming up with that number. And I find uh, that that's where people get a, a big misconception because, they, let's face it, Byron, $350,000 sounds like an awful lot of money. I mean, if somebody's, some making, people, yeah. if somebody's making 50 grand or 100 grand a year, uh, being handed a check for $350,000, that sounds like they've won the lottery. In fact, they have won the lottery if a death hadn't been associated with it. And so the phrase, the way we put it into context, I like your notion of you know asking how long do you plan to be dead if you're going to be dead more than three years, is this going to work? The way that we often do it is uh, what I put in my book, The Truth About Money, drop a zero is one of the most uh, effective ways that I talk about it. Cut in half, drop a zero. In other words, if you take that $350,000 in death benefit, drop a zero. The 350000 becomes 35000 And then cut it in half. The 35000 becomes seventeen five. That's the annual income that that death benefit is going to provide your surviving spouse. Could they afford to support themselves on $17,500 a year? Generally, with the face amount that most people are buying, the answer is almost always no. And which means they're severely underinsured. So people are sometimes shocked when we say to them, you know what, you need a million, two million, three million worth of life insurance. They find that unfathomable. Well, they might, but again, the, the, the good, that's the bad news. The bad news is that they always need more than they think they need. 
The good news is it almost always costs a whole lot less than they think it's going to cost. So they can actually afford to get the right amount. There's no reason not to, just because it sounds like a large number. Um, and how much is too much? The carriers and the industry will actually not allow you to buy too much. If you only made, let's say, 40000 and you came in looking to buy $10 million of coverage, they wouldn't sell it to you. They don't, they're not allowed to. It has to make sense relative to, the, to what you make and who you are. And so if you're buying it, there's no chance you could possibly be overinsured on life insurance. And that's a, that's a really fascinating point that's worth elaborating because a lot of folks would, would scratch their heads listening to you say that. Why would an insurance company refuse to sell a $10 million policy to somebody? The reason is simple. It's against the law to profit from insurance. And that's what you right. have. If a guy making forty grand dies with a $10 million policy, guess what? His spouse or, or her spouse just made a profit. So the insurance industry can't help you make a profit. All they can do is help recover a financial loss. And it's important. Right. They don't to- want anybody thinking like Jimmy Stewart was thinking when he jumped off the bridge uh, in It's a Wonderful Life, thinking I'm worth more dead than alive. Anybody that thinks that is actually more likely to take their own life which also makes them a bad risk. So they don't want anybody to feel that they're worth more dead than alive. And so it's important that people understand that fact when they are presented the opportunity by an insurance agent to buy a cash value life insurance contract, a variable universal life policy, for example, with the promise of fabulous profits being able to be obtained by this. That is inherently in conflict with the fundamental goal and purpose of life insurance. Yeah, we we believe the primary purpose of life insurance is to provide a death benefit, and that's by the way when it works best. There is the product is the most amazing product. It is the best asset class to own when you die. No 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 asset class performs better at a death than life insurance. And since everyone dies, you would think that from a diversification standpoint, and I know that you recommend and routinely diversify your clients into all different asset classes just to make sure that if interest rates are go up, they are, they're covered. If they go down, they're covered. If stocks go up, they, they international, you know, domestic, they, you know, they're diversified against all these risks. And, and some of those risks may happen and some of them may not, but death is a 100% chance. And so um, it makes sense to have a tiny little sliver of your assets in life insurance so that when you die, if, especially if you die early, there's no asset that can compete with life insurance. It's so really it works it's better it, than any other asset. It's really very true, and that is why we so strongly believe that life insurance is an inherent part of the financial planning process. And while clients come in saying, I want to know how to turn my money into double my money, our attitude is, well, let's make sure that while we're trying to do that, Risks are protected so that your surviving spouse and children are protected financially and cared for and why it's so vital. Byron, if you can hang around, I'd love to have you uh, stay with us because we haven't talked about long-term care insurance. Uh, you able to hang around with sure. us to get into Absolutely. that? Um, we're going to take a quick break uh, to check in with the news. We come back, Byron Udell, founder and CEO of AccuQuote, is going to talk with us about what's going on in the world of long-term care insurance. A lot of folks interested in buying it. We often recommend it, and yet there is sticker shock often associated with this product. We're going to talk about the state of the art in long-term care insurance. Do you need it? How do you afford it? And what's going on in that industry? Stay with us on The Rick Edelman Show, 888-PLAN-RICK, RiceDelman.com. with the founder of one of the nation's largest independent investment advisory firms, coming up on The Rick Edelman Show.
Welcome back to the program. Rick Edelman here. If you haven't yet had an opportunity to go through our brand new seminar, The Truth About Retirement Plans and IRAs, we're bringing about... With the Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandslots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. As humans, we're naturally driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search. Match. With Indeed, when I was looking to hire someone, it was so slow and overwhelming. I wish I had used Indeed. If you need to hire, you need Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And Indeed doesn't just help you hire faster. 93% of employers agree Indeed delivers the highest quality matches compared to other job sites, according to a recent Indeed survey. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash podcast. That's Indeed.com slash podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Back this fall, seminars are underway uh, this Tuesday and Wednesday in Dulles, Red Bank, Mansfield, Center City, Philly, Lombard, and downtown L.A. And uh, September 30th and October 1st, uh, next week, we're going to be doing the seminar in Tyson's Corner, Short Hills, Miami, Tucson, and Walnut Creek. If you are planning for retirement at some point and you're participating in a retirement plan at work right now, you've got money in a 401K, 403B, the thrift savings plan if you're a federal worker. In a 457 program, if you're a municipal employee, if you have money in a retirement account or in an IRA, a deductible or a Roth, a spousal IRA, an inherited IRA, you need to make sure you're handling these accounts correctly because I'm willing to bet that most of your money are in those kinds of accounts. Are you saving correctly? Are you choosing the right investments? Are you handling the beneficiary designation correct? If you're ready to retire or already in retirement, are you handling the withdrawals correctly? The RMD, the dreaded required minimum distributions, are you doing that correctly? That's what the seminar is all about. Based on my new number one selling national uh, bestseller, The Truth About Retirement Plans and IRAs, sessions at 1 and 7 p.m. both days, this Tuesday and Wednesday and September 30th and October 1st. It's $15 a person, $25 a couple. Everybody gets a free copy of my number one bestseller. Register online at rickedelman.com. That's ricedelman.com. Or call us at 888-PLAN-RICK. That's 888 888- 752-6742. Well, we're back with Byron Udell, who's the founder and CEO of AccuQuote. Thanks for hanging around, Byron, uh, for this next segment. Okay. And we are uh, talking about the most fabulous, exciting news of the week, which is the fact that this is Life Insurance Awareness Month. Well, you say we try that one again, huh? <laughs> well, um, maybe we, we should. Uh, I don't think anybody, Byron, is uh, terribly excited about this except you and me. Uh, and although we've been talking about life insurance awareness, uh, there is an equal amount of interest from folks in their 40s, 50s, 60s, 70s about long-term care insurance. A lot of adult children paying attention to this on behalf of their aging and elderly parents because we're discovering that people are living longer than ever. The, the days of retiring at 62 and being dead at 65 are long gone. 
People are living well into their 80s and 90s routinely these days. And long-term care insurance provides a fundamental basic recommendation in an awful lot of cases for folks who are in retirement planning uh, efforts. And yet, while we generally tell clients that they need to consider long-term care, particularly if they're middle class and married or have a partner, middle class and married are the key. If you're, if you're poor, you really don't have to worry about it because the government has Medicaid to take care of you. And if you're rich, you don't have to worry about it because, well, you're rich. And so you've got the money to pay for the care. But if you're like the rest of us, middle class, and if you have a spouse or partner Meaning while you're spending seven or eight grand a month on long-term care, your spouse or partner is still able to afford their lifestyle. You need to pay attention to long-term care, don't you? Absolutely. And you, you stated it perfectly. If you're poor, you don't need it. Medicaid will pay. But you got to be poor. you got to be broke. I mean, you can't have any assets. If you have any assets, they're going to force you to spend them all down. And then once you're out of money, then Medicaid will kick in and Medicaid will pay for long-term care. And, of course, if you're rich, you might want it, you might not. Some people are rich. Arguably, if you're rich, you don't need collision insurance on your car either, and rich people still have it because they would rather have an insurance company pay if something happens. You can lay that risk off on a carrier, but you don't absolutely need it. I don't need it on my car, and I have it. Uh, if I crack my car up, I can afford to buy a new car, but um, I still have collision, um, and I have long-term care because even we, though I can afford it, um, I, I choose to lay that risk right. off on a we, carrier. We argue for the, that for the rich, long-term care is part of an estate planning tool. You know, why, why bother spending your own money when you can have the insurance company do it, and that enables you to preserve that much more money for charity or children. So you're right. It's a, well, we, it becomes a different approach. Yeah. But let's talk, about about the, of, let's talk about the, the middle class, being, though. Um, uh, sure. I, I want to focus on the middle class because we have – that's predominantly our clients. It's predominantly the folks listening to this radio show. And for them, they are desperately trying to do the right thing, protecting themselves and their spouses from the uh, crushing costs of long-term care services, which are now – the national average is about eight grand a month for a stay in a nursing home. Home health care uh, is nearly as expensive, uh, $20, $30, $40 an hour. So we routinely recommend long-term care insurance uh, as one of the most efficient ways to uh, protect yourself against this financial risk. And the problem now is that the long-term care insurance industry is discovering that they have mispriced their policies. They have severely underestimated the number of customers that would ultimately file claims and the cost of those claims. And we're discovering as a result that not only are some of these companies just quitting the business because they can't figure out how to make a pro profit, others are dramatically increasing their premiums. Let me give you a couple of statistics from Genworth. And I know you know Genworth very, very well. Genworth is one of the largest uh, companies in the long-term care arena. They have just recently announced price increases. A, f a married couple, both age 50, for a, I'll just refer to it briefly here as a typical policy. Well, we can get into the nuances later of what that is. But for a typical policy, a 50-year-old married couple used to pay $3,700 a year. They will now pay $8,400 you must be joking. What's your reaction to that, Byron? Well, I can tell you that the pricing is based upon the claims experience. They're not getting rich in this business. Most of the carriers have exited the business because they're losing money. And 
the fact that rates keep going up not only for new issues but for people who already own the policies. So existing policies, when we sell them, there's actually a question right on the application that says, do you understand that rates aren't guaranteed, they can go up, they have gone up and probably will go up, and, I, and are you okay if they do go up? They have to say yes to that or they can't even buy it. The reason that rates keep going up is that consumers are actually winning this game. I mean, they're actually collecting more out of this industry than they've been paying into this industry. So while it may be a horrible thing to get a rate increase or they have to pay more, the reason for it is the carriers can't seem to charge enough. And and that's so, the, again, uh, look at the statistics. If the cost of care is eight grand a month, and they were charging thirty seven hundred dollars a year for the policy, and the odds of collecting, the odds of actually needing long term care per person are 70%. The odds of one or the other of two people in a couple, so in other words, one or the other needs it 91% that one or the other will actually need long-term care in their lifetime. And if they're only charging you four grand a year for something that will end up costing them eight grand a month, you can see why they are severely underpricing the cost of the insurance. A lot of the policies have a cost of living provision in there. Uh, which which causes the benefit to index up before you actually start collecting. And if you take a look at Genworth's app, which can be downloaded on anyone's smartphone, whether it's an iPhone or an Android, it's called Cost of Care. It's actually pretty cool. If you buy it at 50, you're not really contemplating needing the coverage or needing the care at 51, but rather maybe at 75 or 80 or 85. So you're looking 20, 25 years down the road. They have it by literally by zip code or by state. You can plug in what the cost of care is for a nursing home or in-home care, and then they have an, uh, an inflation factor, and you can say, what's it going to cost 20 years from now when I need it? And it'll blow your mind. I mean, it's, it's a really cool app. They're not selling anything on the app. It's just a, it's a useful tool uh, that they provide for free to anybody that wants to see what the cost of care is going to be. And so our attitude is whenever we get a client who calls us saying, oh, my goodness, I just got a premium rate increase notice. They're going to double the cost of my contract or it's going to go up 80 percent or what have you. And what should I do about it? Our answer is write the check, pay the bill, because if you're fearful of having to write a check for nine grand a year, how are you going to feel about writing a check for nine grand a month? Right, and again, nine grand a month—that's today's price. I yeah. Mean, when I looked at mine, I was figuring it's going to cost twenty or thirty grand a month by the time I need it. So, I mean, it, it can be—you know—it's going up very fast. Obviously, baby boomers are right in the sweet spot of starting to need this care. It's a big industry. Uh, the cost of care has been going up five percent a year, even though other things haven't necessarily been inflating that fast because there's just. What are you going to do? I mean, you don't. It's, it's almost like the, uh, the the funeral business. I mean, you need the care. Nobody nobody wants to change diapers and do the things that long term care facilities do, except them. So you really sort of you know yeah, there's competition, but the fact is the prices are very high. My mom is actually in a nursing home right now, uh, and it's expensive. Uh, and my aunt is as well, and uh, she's in assisted living, and and that is five grand a month. Uh, just for basic uh, services, not yep. not involving medical or healthcare issues. So my my dad's Lucky Land Casino asking people what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky. Lucky in line at the deli, I guess. Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kid's PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. 
Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. At home with a caretaker, and it's $1,120 a week. The, so the conclusion is this, and it's, it, there's really no easier or polite way to say this. We have to be blunt about it. Yes, the cost of long-term care insurance stinks. Yes, it is getting increasingly expensive. But so what? You've got to include it as part of your financial plan. We can complain about it, but the flip side, if you really want to solve the problem, is to shorten your life expectancy. (laughs) I mean, that's just not an alternative anybody really wants to contemplate. Just die suddenly without getting sick first. I mean, there's only two possibilities. We're either going to die suddenly one day of a heart attack or something or an accident, or we're going to get sick first and then die. Most people get sick first and then die, which is why 70% need long-term care. The odds of someone's house burning down are like 1 in 1,200, and no one complains about buying fire insurance. for you. Nobody would even think about having their house uninsured if their house were to burn down. But that's a 1 in 1,200 chance of making a claim, whereas with, with long-term care, the odds are much, much higher. Uh, and yet, still, it's it's something it requires. We talked earlier about the ability to, for people to come to grips with their own mortality. It might even be harder to come to grips with the possibility of your own morbidity. The thought of being in a nursing home in diapers, you know, it, it's it's not a pleasant thought. Nobody wants to think about it. And and uh, usually, what we find is the people most willing and the most uh, open-minded and the ones that want to buy the coverage the most are people that have actually had to deal with this firsthand with their parents, grandparents. Yeah, that's um, exactly. They, what, they, they yeah. see what it does. That that that's when people step up and say, "I got it. I don't. I do not want to do to my kids what my parents have done to me." That's exactly what we encounter as well. It's when someone has had a personal experience, they have a total change of perspective on it. It's been very helpful information. Byron Udell, the founder and CEO of AccuQuote. Visit AccuQuote online at AccuQuote.com. Terrific information about insurance. And if you're looking to get a policy as inexpensively as is available, that's where you want to go at AccuQuote.com. Or you can call them at 888-895-0415. Byron, thank you so much for joining us on the program today. Thanks, Rick. And when we come back on the program, your telephone calls and some shocking headlines in this week's newspapers. Stay with us on The Rick Edelman Show. Need a second opinion on your investments? Get a free portfolio review at rickedelman.com. Welcome back to the program. Rick Edelman here. Thanks for hanging around. And we're taking telephone calls, 888-PLAN-RICK, if you want to dial us up right here, right now. Some folks tell us they have trouble reaching us during the program. Not a, not a challenge. That phone number will work for you all week long. 888-752-6742. My colleagues and I at Edelman Financial, happy to help you out with any investments, taxes, mortgages, insurance, college planning, retirement planning, buying houses, leasing cars, getting out of debt, whatever's on your mind. We're going to cover it for you and get you the information you need to cut through the calamity of the clutter and confusion and complexity of personal finance. And some of the reason that you find this so confusing and perplexing is because you pay attention to the news. Yes, boys and girls, friends and ladies, ladies and gentlemen, it is your own fault. 
It is because you are trying so hard to do such a good job of being diligent and supportive and aware of what is happening in the world that you are trying desperately to make the right financial decisions for you and your family that you are paying close attention to what is going on in the media. And let me just tell you that that is not going to do you a bit of good. And to wit, evidence, point blank, this past week, September 8th, Monday this past week, there were two different articles in two different newspapers, both of them talking about the economy. Now, if you happen to be a reader of USA Today, you would have been very, very excited at the headline that said, Things Look Up As Number of Long-Term Jobless Falls. Well, that was certainly an applause-worthy piece of headline there. Very exciting. And in fact, I would be willing to say that you would gain optimism. You would gain enthusiasm. Your confidence would increase as a result of a headline in USA Today on September 8th saying, things looking up. But of course, if you had also happened to be a subscriber of the Wall Street Journal on the very same day of September 8th, you would have seen this headline. Study raises red flags for economy. God, are you kidding me? So which is it? Should I be excited? Things are looking up? Or should I be crestfallen because of a study raising red flags? And this is really the point, isn't it? In fact, there's something that behavioral finance researchers refer to this as, small sample size representative bias, which is a mouthful, isn't it? Small sample size representative bias, which means that what we tend to do as human beings is we take a look at the world around us in an effort to determine what's going on, and our analysis determines our conclusions. Our, our view leads to our perspective. So if I happen to read the Wall Street Journal, I'm going to be pessimistic, unhappy, worried, scared, nervous. If I happen to have read USA Today, I'd be excited, motivated, and optimistic. Small sample size representative bias. By looking at our small sample size, we could reach the wrong conclusion. I love it when someone, I, this happened a lot back in 08 and early 09, as people would call me lamenting the horrible economy that we were in. And it was. Remember that back then? And I remember every so often somebody would say, this is terrible. The entire country is out of work. This is worse than the Depression of the 1920s. And I'm thinking to myself, A, number one, you weren't alive back in the Depression. B, when you say everyone's out of work, you're only talking about those you know. And I've had, I've had that conversation. Where I remember talking with a guy who said, everybody I know is out of work. I'm like, that's because everybody you know works at the same company. And everybody did just get laid off at that company. That's a small sample size. You need to look beyond your neighborhood, beyond your parking lot at work, to what's going on in a town across the state, in a state across the country, at a company in a different industry. If you look only at your own little microcosm, you might end up getting an inaccurate assessment of what is going on. 
And that is a very common fallacy. So be really, really careful if you read a limited number of media outlets, if you expose yourself to a limited number. And that leads to another behavioral finance bias called confirmation bias. Because if you only have time to watch the news for a half hour each evening on TV, let me ask you, what station are you going to tune into? I'm willing to bet that you're going to watch Fox or MSNBC, but you're not going to watch both. Because that's what the academic studies all tell us. If you're politically conservative, you'll probably watch Fox. And if you're politically liberal, you'll probably watch MSNBC. In other words, if you like what they have to say, you'll believe that they're correct. If they say things you agree with, you're most likely to watch. And if you hear them saying things that you don't agree with, you're less likely to watch. Confirmation bias. When someone you're a fan of says something, you're more likely to agree with them. And if they are an opponent of yours, you're more likely to disagree with them. Beware of confirmation bias and small sample size representative bias. Both of them could cause you to make incorrect financial decisions. And helping you avoid that is what this radio show is all about. It's what my company, Edelman Financial Services, is all about. If we can help you, please give us the opportunity. Call us at 888-PLAN-RICK. Visit us online at ricedelman.com. Click that red button. I want to talk to an advisor. We're happy to help you, just like we've helped thousands of others just like you. Stay with us for more on The Rick Edelman Show. Okay, round two. Name something that's not boring. A laundry? Ooh, a book club. Computer solitaire, huh? Ah, oh, sorry. We were looking for Chumba Casino. That's right. Chumbacasino.com has over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. Chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. Forward, prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. As humans, we're naturally driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search. Match. With Indeed, when I was looking to hire someone, it was so slow and overwhelming. I wish I had used Indeed. If you need to hire, you need Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And Indeed doesn't just help you hire faster. 93% of employers agree Indeed delivers the highest quality matches compared to other job sites, according to a recent Indeed survey. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash podcast. That's Indeed.com slash podcast. Terms and conditions apply. personal finance advice for 25 years. This is The Rick Edelman Show. This is The Rick Edelman Show. Now, here's Rick Edelman. 
Welcome back to the program. Thanks for hanging around this half hour. Triple Eight Plan Rick is the number to dial us up right here, right now. If you can't get through during the show, just call Triple Eight seven five two sixty seven forty two. Anytime during the week, we're happy to help you. Have you been thinking about refinancing your mortgage? Well, you might want to follow the lead of U.S. corporations. U.S. companies have issued more debt than at any time ever. In fact, this is a record for the third year in a row. So far this year, companies around the world, not just in the United States, but around the world, have sold nearly a trillion dollars worth of bonds. Now think about this. If you're a company, you need capital to build factories, hire workers, engage in research and development, sales and marketing, whatever. You need capital to run your business. And there are only two ways that you can raise capital. One is to sell stock in your company. In other words, you invite others to become part owners of your business. Well, you might not want to do that because you like being the owner of the business and you don't want to have to give up your ownership because you expect your company to be profitable and you want to be the beneficiary of those profits. So you don't want to give up your equity, your ownership, so you don't want to issue stock. But you still need the capital, so how do you get the capital? You borrow it. You go get a loan. Now, if you need a couple of hundred million dollars, well, I don't think you're going to go down to the local bank and get a Visa card. That's not going to quite give you the amount of cash you need. And an individual bank might not even be willing or able to come up with a couple of hundred million dollars as a loan. So what do you do? You do a bond offering. You, in, you don't issue stock. You issue bonds. And you say to investors, if you buy my bond, I will pay you interest on the bond, and eventually I'll pay you back the principal. This way you get to keep all of your equity, and you just pay for the cost of borrowing the money through the interest. Why would companies around the globe, who, by the way, are sitting on trillions of dollars of cash, why would they borrow money? to finance their operations when they have the cash. Simple. Interest rates are at all-time record lows. And with such a low cost of borrowing, these companies are saying two things. Number one, let's conserve our cash because the cost of borrowing is so low. And B, we don't think that the cost of borrowing is going to stay this low. So even if we don't need the money now, we might need the money in a few years, but by then the interest rates might be higher. Better to borrow now at the lower rate while we still can. Corporations around the world are doing this. So I want to ask you, why haven't you done this? You have debt. You've got car loans. You have student loans. You have credit cards. You have mortgage loans. Why aren't you refinancing your debt as well? Well, this is why it's a wonderful opportunity to refinance your mortgage if you haven't already done so, because mortgage rates are probably about as low as they're going to go. I mean, they might go down a little bit here or there, but do you think they're going to drop in half? I don't think anybody's expecting that. But do you think mortgage rates might double? I think everybody's expecting that. So why not lock in for a 30-year period today's historically low interest rates? So I think that that is something to consider. Right now, the 30-year mortgage is a little over 4%. Locking in 4% for a 30-year period of time, pretty darn exciting opportunity. You didn't have this opportunity 10 years ago, and you're not going to have this opportunity 10 years from now, most likely. Why not take advantage of it? Which leads me 
to another question. Let's say that you're going to buy a new car for a price of $25,000. You pick the car, you know what they are that cost 25 grand. You're going to put down $1,000 as a down payment. You're going to get a loan for $24,000. I'm going to give you the choice. It's a 4% loan, and you're either going to pay a monthly payment of $542 or $328. Which loan would you prefer? $542 a month, $328 a month. Well, if you're like most people, you will probably choose the 328. I mean, why not save a couple of hundred bucks a month in monthly payments? Picture what you can do with that extra couple of hundred bucks a month. Pay other bills. Save and invest. However, here's the catch. That payment of 542 a month is on a four-year loan. That 328, it's a seven-year loan. And according to industry data... Most auto purchases today are being taken out on seven-year loans. You must be joking. Unfortunately, I'm not joking. And the danger of this, yeah, the good news is the payment's only 328 And I think people are doing it because they otherwise wouldn't be able to afford the car. They wouldn't be able to afford the $542 payment, but they can afford the 328 payment, and so they're going for 328 instead of 542 The downside is this. It's a car. Cars are not houses. Houses grow in value over long periods of time. Cars don't. Cars fall in value over time. And most car warranties expire after four years. If you get a seven-year loan on that automobile... Yeah, you'll save some money on a monthly basis, but at the end of four years, there's no warranty, which means you're on the hook for all repairs and maintenance, but you still have three years left in payments. And oh, by the way, after four years on a seven-year loan, you still owe $11,000 on that loan, more than what that car is likely to be worth which means if you get that big repair bill, you can't walk away. You can't say the heck with it, I'll sell the car instead because you'll end up having to write a check to get out of the loan because you won't be able to sell the car for as much as the car is worth. Please, please, please be very careful. 25% of new car loans, according to Experian, 25% of them are for 84-month loans. 84 months! That's seven years! Do you really think you're going to keep the car that long? Oh, by the way, if the car you're replacing isn't seven years old, what makes you think that the next car you're going to replace is going to be seven years old at the time you replace it? Be really, really careful. Oh, and here's a little uh, fascinating factoid. How is it that the car dealer is figuring out what the interest rate is that they should charge you in the first place? And not just car dealers, but... Banks and credit card companies, mortgage lenders, how are they determining how much to charge you in interest? Well, you know what the answer is, your credit worthiness. So how credit worthy are you? Well, one way they find out is now they're using social data. One company is looking at your friends on Facebook because if your friends have bad credit records, 
they figure probably you do too. If your friends are late paying back their loans, they figure you'll be late paying back yours. Oh, and oh, by the way, if one of your friends is actually delinquent on their loan, well, it's the birds of a feather scenario. They figure you are who you hang around with. Another company gathers data from Facebook, eBay, and Amazon, and they look at how customers fill out their online applications. If you fill out the application typing in all caps or no caps, they charge you more in interest. They also look at your creditworthiness depending on where your computer is. Is your computer in your home or is your computer at work? They know these things and that affects your creditworthiness. I'm Rick Edelman. You can't beat the man, but you can have someone help you, and that's what we do. Triple Eight Plan Rick. Call us anytime during the week. Visit us at rickedelman.com. That's ricedelman.com. My colleagues and I at Edelman Financial, happy to help you with your personal finances, whatever the situation. Give us a call, Triple Eight Plan Rick, or visit us at ricedelman.com. When we come back, we're going to take your telephone calls at Triple Eight Plan Rick. Stay with us. doesn't come with instructions. More of your questions coming up on The Rick Edelman Show. Welcome back to the program. Rick Edelman here taking your telephone calls. Um, we were just talking about borrowing money. And we talked about student loans, and we talked about mortgage loans and car loans, credit card loans. There's another kind of loan that I didn't mention that I want to highlight here, and that is a loan from your retirement account at work, borrowing from your 401k. And I'm just going to say very briefly, don't do it, despite the fact that one in five working Americans have done this. One in five, 20% of U.S. workers who have a 401k currently has an outstanding loan, according to Fidelity. So I want you to go to our website because I wrote an article this past week for CNBC, and it is the number one story, their headlining story in their newsletter called Your Wealth. And we'll provide you the link to that article. Go to my website at rickedelman.com on the main page. Scroll down to about a third of the way down on the main page of rickedelman.com. And you'll see my story on the top 10 reasons, 10 reasons never to borrow from a 401k plan. It's the number one story at CNBC. We'll give you the link. Go to rickedelman.com to get a hold of that and uh, take advantage of that info. If you have a 401k and you've borrowed money against it, you need to read this. And if you've never borrowed money against it, you need to click on this link and send it to your friends and family who may have, in fact, done exactly that. Let's uh, go to the telephone, shall we? We're going off to Merrick, New York. Kevin, patiently waiting on the phone. Hey, Kevin, welcome to the program. How are you? I'm fine, Rick. Thank you for taking my call. My pleasure. Okay. Um, the reason I'm calling is I'm 60 years old, going to retire in a few years, Um Everyone's talking about long-term health care and that it's time to start looking at these policies, and they're expensive. Mm -hmm. Alternatively, I want to know if this has any validity. Um, I have a whole life on me that's that's pretty much paid off, only runs a few hundred a year to keep that maintained, and I have term on my wife. 
And we've been approached by her uh, union for a wraparound term life that will extend that out to 95 years of age. And my thought was this as an alternative is that if I increased or kept the balance on the life insurance, that when when the time comes, God forbid it comes, um, we pay everything off on our own other assets, and then the surviving spouse will be replenished when the life insurance is is cashed in. Gotcha. Uh, okay. Here's here's the here's the thing. What you're doing is taking something that is surprisingly simple and making it a little more complicated and, and complex, more so than it needs to be. And that is with the aid and assistance of the guy trying to sell you these insurance policies. Um, so we've just on the first hour of this program talked a lot about the cost of insurance and long-term care in particular. So let me simplify the approach for you, Kevin. What we want to do is recognize these are two separate conversations. One is life insurance. The second is long-term care insurance. We want to evaluate each of them independently first before we begin to strategize how we're going to solve the two. So here's what I mean. You're 60 and you're married. How old is your wife? 59. Okay. Uh, that means it's a first marriage for the two of you. Mm-hmm. Amazing how I know these things. And... Um, what this means is we have to ask ourselves a question. If you die, is she at financial risk? In other words, if you die, what will, will she have enough assets and income to sustain her lifestyle the way it currently is? And the answer may be yes. For example, there may be substantial survivorship pension benefits, Social Security benefits. There might be a lot of investment uh, that you've got that can produce a lot of income. Maybe the house is paid for. Who knows what? Maybe the answer is yes. She'll be financially fine. Or the answer may be no, that she'll be in significant financial difficulty upon your death because your income will be gone if you die, and maybe there isn't a lot of other assets or investments available to her. Maybe there's no pension of income available. So if that's the case, we need to evaluate and, and define how much money does she need in life insurance to replace you from a financial perspective. And then we need to do the same thing on her. If she dies, what happens to you financially? So the first thing we want to evaluate is what is the insurable need for each of you from a, from a death perspective, a life insurance perspective? Then mm -hmm. we want to take a look at long-term care and ask ourselves, do you each have the sufficient resources to pay for the care if the two of you need it? Because you're calling from New York. How close are you to New York City? Uh, 30 minutes. The average cost of care in New York City is the highest in the country. It's $137,000 a year. That's the average cost of nursing homes in New York City. The national average is about eighty grand. New York is far higher being an urban area. Most urban areas are, are higher, like L.A., Chicago, all higher than the national averages. So that's yeah, I won't be here. So yeah, <laughs> we'll talk about that separately. So, so we have to ask the question, if you or your wife needed long-term care, which is we're talking about 12 grand a month, can you afford to pay that, and how long could you afford to pay it without bankrupting the other spouse? So once we decide the scenario for your long-term care needs and your life insurance needs, now we can ask the question, what's the simplest, cheapest, most effective way to solve both needs? 
Because if we do it your way, which was to say, well, I know I need life insurance and I have some life insurance and we're thinking about long-term care insurance. We've got some assets over here. Why don't we get a wraparound policy so that if I, if I, before I die, I go into long-term care, I'll use the policy to pay for long-term care. And then if I don't die, I'll take that money and use it for the death benefit. Well, see, when you get very complicated that way, what we've often found is that when people buy a wraparound policy, what we call a hybrid policy, meaning it's a combination, life insurance and long-term care, what happens is... If you end up using it for long-term care, the death benefit goes away or is severely diminished, meaning that when you finally do die, the surviving spouse doesn't have much, if any, life insurance benefit left over because you've already used the benefit on the long-term care. So I want to make sure that we aren't in an effort to control the cost of these policies. We aren't reducing too much the amount of benefit you'll get from each. So... I can just simply tell you, Kevin, that generally speaking, we don't like these wraparound policies. We don't like these policies that are an all-in-one solution. Generally speaking, you've got two separate needs, life insurance and long-term care insurance, and it's better to get separate policies to solve each issue. I'll also tell you that you're in an advantage in New York. Because New York is one of the partnership states, meaning mm -hmm. that they work in conjunction with the long-term care industry to improve the benefits and reduce the costs, which makes the insurance a lot more affordable than it otherwise would be. So I would encourage you to talk with one of my colleagues in, in one of our many New York offices to go through the scenario with you and compare it uh, to the recommendation that you got from that life agent so that we can evaluate that policy recommendation he made and tell you if indeed that is going to solve the problem that you are facing. Because um, you're asking the right question and you're tackling it in the right way. I just want to make sure you're going to reach the right conclusion. And usually coming about it from the sales pitch of a commission-based product-pushing insurance agent isn't always the best approach. I'm Rick Edelman. Visit us at rickedelman.com, 888-PLAN-RICK. More with the host of the PBS TV series, The Truth About Money, coming up on The Rick Edelman Show. Welcome back to the program. Rick Edelman here. Um, don't accuse me of snooping, but I just recently came upon... Um, a bill from the University of Pennsylvania, the hospital of the University of Pennsylvania, for my grandmother. My grandmother spent in November eight days. With the Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandslots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. As humans, we're naturally driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search. Match. With Indeed, when I was looking to hire someone, it was so slow and overwhelming. 
I wish I had used Indeed. If you need to hire, you need Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And Indeed doesn't just help you hire faster. 93% of employers agree Indeed delivers the highest quality matches compared to other job sites, according to a recent Indeed survey. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash podcast. That's Indeed.com slash podcast. Terms and conditions apply in the hospital uh include and the bill reflects uh her uh room and board uh her labs drugs the operating room x-rays cardiology eight days in the hospital at the university of pennsylvania you tell me what was the bill How much did it cost for my grandmother to spend eight days at the Hospital University of Pennsylvania? All-inclusive, room and board, labs, drugs, operating room, x-ray, and cardiology. And I'll just give you a hint, okay? The first digit is a five. The second digit is a six. The third digit is a three. And there are no more digits. The total bill, $563. Yes, my grandmother spent eight days in the hospital at the University of Pennsylvania in November of 1963. And the total bill was $563. The room and board was $30 a day for eight days. The labs were $101.50. The drugs were $11.50. The operating room was 10 bucks. The cardiologist was $15. The biggest expense was the x-rays at $185. The total bill was $563. Her copay was 40 bucks. Blue Cross paid the rest. My how things have changed. Let's talk to Glenn. He's in Vienna, Virginia. Hi, Glenn. Welcome to the program. You're on the air. Hi. Thank you, Rick. Thank you for taking my call. My pleasure. I know that you are a fan of large and long mortgages, but I'm curious about how that practice may apply into refinancings. I purchased my mid-60s era Fairfax house in 1990 for about 300000 and I had about a 240000 mortgage on that at eight and three quarters. I've refinanced this a couple times since then as rates have come down, and I've really my initial strategy was just to uh, chase rates that were declining. But after a few iterations, I needed some work done to the mid-60s house, so I started to pull money out to do some renovations. And so each time I uh, did my last couple of refinancings, I pulled money out and also extended the term back to 30 years. Okay. So fortunately in Fairfax here, you know, we've had appreciation and my house is now worth over 800000 My mortgage is about 400000 It's back at 30 years and I have a three and five-eighths uh, fixed rate at this point. 
So, and I've, my philosophy all along is, is that I probably will never get money this cheap again, so I'm increasing my mortgage, extending the term, uh, and in many cases, I've invested the cash-out proceeds uh, because I think that this is a strategy that will allow me to increase my liquidity by tapping into this locked-up appreciation that we have in the D.C. area. But my question really comes from an uh, income tax perspective, is that I know that the first 100000 of cash-outs, uh, you can still deduct the full amount of your mortgage interest, but anything over that, you have to get into a proration, and you have a partial non-deductibility if you don't use it for home improvement purposes. So my overall goal here is that as long as I can increase my after-tax income from the investing returns that I get by doing the cash outs. And if that's greater than the additional tax that I need to pay from the loss of the interest deduction, I'm thinking that I'm better off. But I sort of wanted to run this by you because it's a little bit of a different flavor on your philosophy. How would you like to host this radio show? Um, because that's, uh, <laughs> that's a pretty good sum summary there, Glenn. Um, couple of caveats that I'll mention. Um, first, uh, everything you said is accurate. Uh, your analysis is, is correct, uh, both from a mathematical perspective as well as from a tax law perspective. A couple of pieces of fine print, though, that we want to uh, highlight. Number one is that as you refinance loans, did you pay any points on any of these loans when you got them? I think maybe only one or so of okay. those that I've done over the time. A lot of folks forget that if they refinance a loan on which they had paid points, they forget to handle the deduction correctly on the points not yet um, paid for but not yet claimed. In other words, when you pay points on a refinance, you don't get a deduction on those points at the time of the refinance. You have to amortize those points over the life of the loan. But if you suddenly yes. pay off that loan, you get to take as a deduction all of the unamortized amount of the points right then and there. A lot of folks forget to do that. That's one issue. Second is, as you pointed out, the deductibility of a mortgage depends on when you obtain the debt. There's a difference, according to the IRS, between acquisition debt and refinance debt. Acquisition debt means the debt used to acquire the home, and you can deduct a loan of up to a million dollars on acquisition debt. So if you buy a house for a million dollars and you get a loan of a million dollars in order to buy it, the full million-dollar loan has tax-deductible interest. But if you pay cash for that million-dollar loan and you later decide to get a mortgage against it, and I don't care what you call it, home equity loan, second mortgage, uh, home equity line of credit, whatever you want to call it doesn't make any difference. If you later get debt on that million-dollar home, only the first $100,000 is deductible. The rest is not, unless, as you pointed out, you're using that proceeds in order to improve the value of the home. It doesn't count for repairs and maintenance, but if you're increasing the value of the house, say adding a swimming pool or adding a wing to the house or a second bedroom or uh, what have you, then that counts as acquisition debt, not refinance debt. So you've got those certain pieces of fine print. Uh, one other very important piece of fine print, and this one comes from our friends at the SEC and FINRA. Uh, the, those are the two federal regulators of the uh, brokerage and advisory communities. There has been, uh, this was a lot more common back in the uh, 2000s and prior, there was a very common strategy among certain pockets of the advisory community where they would actively recommend 
what you're doing, that you take equity out of the house and you invest it on the attitude that if you're borrowing at 3 or 4%, the stock market's historical rate of return is 10%. If you go back to 1926, according to Ibbotson Associates, the S&P 500 has been averaging 10% a year for the past 85, 90 years. So wouldn't it make sense to borrow the money at 4 and invest it at 10 That's a great deal, isn't it? I mean, who yeah. cares if you're not getting a tax deduction on the mortgage interest when you're earning so much more on the investment proceeds. And so there were a lot of guys running around the country 10 years ago saying to do exactly that. They were saying, hey, pull the equity out of your house and let's invest that equity into the stock market. Well, then along came 2008. Not only did the house fall 50% in value, the investments fell 50% in value, and you lost your job. And this helped to contribute to millions of Americans losing their homes. So the regulators are pretty fed up with that sales practice, and they really get nervous when financial advisors, stockbrokers, insurance agents, bank uh, trust loan officers get in the uh, shtick of telling people to take their home equity, which is safe and sound in your home, and pulling it out, placing your home at risk, because if you're not able to repay the loan, you lose the house, and investing it into something as volatile as what the stock market has in recent past been. So before you get too excited uh, about your math, recognize the risks associated with your strategy. Having said all of yeah. that, you're absolutely right, uh, Glenn. The liquidity that you benefit, because let's face it, if you need cash, having a home paid for isn't doing you any good. In your case, you've got $400,000 of equity. $400,000 in the walls of your house. And guess what? That house is going to grow in value or not, whether you have that equity there or not. So you're, right. you're making perfect sense by saying, why don't I take hundred grand or more out of the walls of the house and invest it so not only will I have the house growing in value, I can have an investment account growing in value, and I have improved liquidity all along the way at the same time. It's sound I reasoning. I just want to make sure you fully understand the risks associated with the strategy and that you do the proper tax calculations so that you do, in fact, know what the total costs on an after-tax basis are going to be and what the likelihood is of, of the success you're trying to achieve. Yes. Well, thank you. That makes sense. I figured with my ratio of, uh, of um, the value of the house at 800 and the mortgage still around 400, I still do have some cushion there, obviously, in case there's some downturns. Yeah, and you want to make sure you have the liquidity available to pay the mortgage uh, if yes. you uh, suddenly lose your job, for example. Will you still be able to make the mortgage payment? If that investment account falls in value, will you still be able to make the mortgage payment? That's really what it comes down to. But I know what you're looking at, and it makes perfect sense. Three and five-eighths on a 30-year fixed-rate mortgage. That's incredible. Three and yeah, five-eighths. That's better it. than the GI Bill for guys coming out of World War II. Yeah, that's why I, I made it as big as as big as I felt comfortable making the mortgage, and I took it back out to 30 years because it's almost free money. I, 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 take, I share your attitude. A uh, regulator would say, well, you know, three and five eighths isn't free, but it is three and five eighths. <laughs> I remember the first house I bought back in the 1980s. Gene and I, the interest rate was 12. Yes. And I remember getting a phone call from a guy a year or two ago, and he was complaining because he blew his opportunity to get a loan at five, and he had to get 4.75. He was upset. 
about that. You're at three and five eighths. So why not take full advantage of that? That's my commentary earlier in the program that that's what America's and the worldwide corporations are doing. They're borrowing a trillion dollars this year because they can lock in these incredibly low rates. Why don't we consumers do it too? So I like your thinking. Very much, Glenn. All right. Thank you. You're very welcome. Thanks for calling. I'm Rick Edelman. This is The Rick Edelman Show. More of your questions when we come back. Visit us online at ricedelman.com. That's rickedelman.com. Simple question for you. Do you own rare stamps? Stay with us. wealth of information on personal finance, go to the education page at rickedelman.com. Welcome back to the program. Rick Edelman here. Do you own rare stamps? If you do, I have a question for you. Why don't you own rare coins or fine wine or old lithographs? Well, there's a real simple reason. You like rare stamps. It's fun. You love the hobby. And you're a stamp collector. I get it. When we discover that people own collectibles, whether it's sports memorabilia or artwork, it's because that's what they have an affinity for. It's not because generally people are arguing that rare stamps are a better investment than rare coins. It's simply because that's what they prefer. And if you are really good at it and really, really focused on it, I wouldn't be at all surprised if you have a substantial amount of money tied up in it. Not that you'd ever sell it. That's typically a byproduct of the hobby. The fact that you have amassed a large economic value in that asset, you never plan on selling it. I remember once talking with a client of mine who told me of his wine collection, and I said, what's it worth? And he said it was worth about $40,000, a wine collection. And I said, when do you plan to sell it? And he said, sell it? I'm going to drink it. <laughs> well, I said, well, then it's not worth $40,000. You can't put it on your balance sheet if you're going to drink it. And, unless, and if you're planning on mailing those stamps uh, with the next set of bills you put in the mail, well, then that doesn't count either. But that's not what people do who own these collectibles. They're going to keep it forever, which means you're planning on giving it to your kids, right? Because you're not going to sell this collection. Unless you might trade one for something else as part of your hobby, but you're going to leave it to your kids. I got news for you. Your kids do not share your affinity for your collection. According to a recent uh, survey in Barron's, two-thirds of the people who inherit rare stamps sell them. Two-thirds. They don't want the stamps, Dad. They want the cash that those stamps are worth. Indeed, 98% of those surveyed said that the reason that they own what they own in a collectible's nature is that it's an emotional decision. And oh, by the way, stamps come in third. Wine and cars are the two greatest passions. Stamps, then coins. 
So if you're thinking your kids are going to keep your stamps, you need to talk with your kids because chances are they won't. And since they won't, they probably won't sell them for as much as you would because they don't know how. They'll dump them to get rid of them. You, on the other hand, would probably get a higher value because you know how to do that better than they do. Talk with your kids if you have collectibles as part of your investment portfolio. Let's talk with uh, Alan. He's in Coral Springs, Florida. Hey, Alan, welcome to the program. How are you? I'm good, Rick. Thank you for taking my call. My pleasure. Uh, my question is, I have a very diversified portfolio, but should I, should, if I wanted to add precious metals, what is your opinion on that? And if so, how much of the portfolio should be invested in that? Yes, you should have uh, precious metals in your portfolio. Not because you think gold is going to double or triple. Not because the U.S. economy is going to collapse, the dollar become worthless, and runaway inflation will destroy the nation, and gold is going to go to 5000 and ounce. None of that nonsense. None of these ridiculous Armageddon stories you see peppering the Internet. You own gold and silver and platinum, Merely as a diversification tool. It makes sense. Uh, we believe in broad-based global diversification. We provide our clients typically with 18 or 19 asset classes and market sectors, including precious metals. Also minerals, non-precious, such as zinc and copper uh, and uh, so on. Also commodities and lumber. They belong in the portfolio as well. How much should all of that be? About 5% of the portfolio is generally what we provide to our clients. Often less, rarely more, um, because as a diversification tool, you don't need to own much more than that in order to achieve the job. In other words, what it comes down to is this fancy word, correlation. You want to own assets that are not always correlated with each other. In other words, if something goes up, I want something else that frankly might go down. I want something, if something goes down, I want something else that goes up. Picture a seesaw. Not all parts of the seesaw rise at the same time. We want assets that are non-correlated. And history tells us that stocks, bonds, real estate, precious metals, commodities, these asset classes are non-correlated. Just because one is going up doesn't mean that the others are too. And by having assets, some of which go up when others go down, helps reduce your overall risk and reduce your volatility. So yeah, precious metals belongs in your portfolio, not because I think gold is going to double, frankly I don't, but because it might. And that's the whole point. Make sense? I would also suggest that you do this through exchange-traded funds. Rather than buying the hard metal, a cheaper, easier, simpler, more convenient way to do it is through ETFs rather than buying the bullion directly. Uh, so you could buy bullion if you wished, but I w would find that uh, we generally do it for our clients, not generally, always do it for our clients through ETFs. So I hope that's helpful to you, Alan. And if you've got similar questions about how you should construct your portfolio, and I'll bet your one big reason you're thinking about it is your retirement, how have you diversified your retirement portfolio? Think about your 401k at work or your thrift savings plan in the government or 403b, 457, your IRA. How have you diversified that account. Do you understand how to evaluate the choices in your 401k plan? How do you know if you're investing properly? Are you investing the proper amount of money? If you have old dormant accounts, 
should you roll them over to an IRA? And should that IRA be the deductible IRA or a Roth IRA? How do you handle the beneficiary designation for all of your accounts? This is the kind of information we're going to convey to you at our seminar this Tuesday and Wednesday in Dulles, Red Bank, Mansfield, Center City, Philly, Lombard, and downtown L.A. September 30th and October 1st is going to be in Tyson's Corner, Short Hills, Miami, Tucson, and Walnut Creek. Sessions at 1 and 7 p.m., $15 a person, $25 a couple. You'll get a free copy of my number one national bestseller, The Truth About Retirement Plans and IRAs. Register online at rickedelman.com. That's ricedelman.com. And I'll see you again next week. Get the truth about money every weekend on The Rick Edelman Show. With lucky landslots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details.